Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome to today's episode, which will likely deal with some dark topics and sometimes sweary words. So listener discretion is always advised. For ad-free and bonus episodes, click in the link in the show notes for exclusive content. You can support the show at buymeacoffee.com or by giving me a rate, writing a review, or subscribing to future episodes. And with all my marketing blah 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 out of the way, on with the show. Hello, and welcome to Season 3 of A Million Other Choices. I am still your host, Kim. Today's story is about a betrayal so deep and so unfathomable that I have been thinking about it for about five years since I first heard it. It has been fairly well publicized, and you might have heard it before, particularly if you listen to much international podcasts. But I am telling it anyways, because I just don't like the coverage that has been out there for it, for my own personal reasons. So if you know the story, maybe you don't know all of the story. Also, in my research, I noticed that the family are mercilessly raked over the coals in the media, so I want to try and balance some of that out. This is the murder of Tia Sharp. Tia was born on June 30th, 2000, the same year my son was born, and this is another story that makes me think of all the things that I've gotten to see my son and my daughter do that so many families don't. She was born in Croydon in South London, and her mum, Natalie, was a teenager at the time, but that made them very closely bonded to each other. She was the first grandchild of Natalie's mum, Christine Bricknell, as well. And knowing the bond that my mom had with Taylor, her first grandchild, and how much I'm looking forward to one day having my own grandbabies, it's a bond and a love that can't really be described. Super tight bond between the three of them, but particularly Natalie and Tia. Mum Natalie described Tia as the color of all colors. She was the loudest in the room. You knew when she was there. She was confident and funny and a bit of a firecracker. Not shy at all. She was a very good student and did well in school. She loved films, music, and singing, and would often pretend her Blackberry was a microphone. On Saturday nights, she would be glued to the television for The X Factor. One day, she said she wanted to be an actress herself. And above her bed, her name was spelled out in giant letters on the wall in her favorite color, pink. Natalie and Tia lived in Mitcham, which is close by... New Addington, where Christine lived with her partner, Stuart Hazel. 
So Tia spent a lot of time at her grandparents' house and adored them. She particularly had a very close relationship with her grandpa, Stuart. As far as Tia's family life, she did have some attendance issues at school, and social services had come out once to Natalie's because her boyfriend at the time smoked weed, but they didn't find any signs of neglect or abuse and just described the family as a bit dysfunctional. But aren't we all? Tia's grandparents lived in a place called New Addington, which isn't the greatest section of London. There's quite a bit of crime and stuff there, and according to Wikipedia, New Addington, in comparison with other areas, was said to be the worst in Croydon to live based on life expectancy, incapacity, benefit claimants rates and income support, unemployment, crime, school exam passes, public transport, accessibility, and access to open space and nature. So, not a great neighborhood, but they were a tight-knit group. Tia went on to have two younger brothers born to her mum, Natalie, a bit later. Tia's dad, Steve Carter, was kind of out of the picture. Natalie and him had separated either before she was born or very soon after, and so she had only seen him on holidays and in the summer until about 2010, when Natalie and Steve's working parenting relationship kind of soured. Christine was the daughter of a warehouse worker, and she had gotten pregnant with Natalie when she was only 15. Tia's dad, Paul, was a long-distance trucker and spent a bit of time in prison. They did stay married for about 18 years, but then divorced, and she got married again in 2004. But that one didn't last very long at all. She had met Stuart when she was working as a bartender at the Rains Park Tavern. and She was described by some as uncouth and foul-mouthed, Um, I believe it would be what my dad would call salt of the earth. Stewart had a few, 31 to be precise, past convictions for all sorts of things from drunken brawls to B&Es, but he stayed out of trouble for the most part after meeting Christine, and other than being a weed smoker and a fairly heavy drinker, oh, and the one time that he got kicked out of the Randall Tavern in 2010 when one of the bartenders there recalls, We saw him coming up the path carrying a machete. It was about the time the kids were coming out of school. I locked the doors and told everyone to stay inside. Then I called the police. So he got 12 months in jail for that, but kind of normal family life for New Addington. Christine said that she knew Stuart's dad, Keith, and that his dad had been a regular at the bar that she had worked at. She says, quote, I knew Stuart had been in prison before, but I took him as I found him. He seemed like a nice guy. Quite charming, funny, and I don't judge. We got friendly, and he seemed to look out for me, care about me. End quote. They moved in together in April of 2007, but Tia had known him since she was about two. But, you know, they were all a little rough around the edges. As some of you might remember, London in 2012 that summer hosted the Olympics, which added both a boost to the city's population and also an international spotlight of scrutiny. On the 2nd of August, 2012, Tia phoned her grandma Christine and asked if she could stay over. Tia spent a lot of time back and forth between her mom and grandparents, and the summer was no exception. Christine said that it was okay with her, but she wasn't going to be home because she was working that night. Uh, She worked overnight at a care home. So if her grandpa said it was okay, then it was fine by her. And later, after Christine had checked with Stuart, he texted Natalie that she could stay over. Natalie read out the text to Tia and she says, yes, 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 while jumping up and down and immediately ran to her room to go and pack. She met her grandpa, Stuart, at the train station in Croydon, and then they went shopping together to get some stuff to eat. And the plan was to spend that night doing some household chore stuff, 
and watching some TV and hang out until Christine got home the next day, which was expected to be around 10 p.m. Christine phoned that night at one point around 9, and Stuart said everything was good. They were playing their PS3, and Tia was heard in the background laughing, saying, no, I'm playing PS3. The next morning, Tia slept in a bit, as was pretty usual for a preteen in the summer. And then at just after noon, her grandpa gave her some money because she wanted to get some flip-flops in Croydon at the mall. Now, Stuart remembers the time because he was vacuuming and happened to look up at the, the microwave, or the time on the microwave, when he heard her leave. And the clock there said 12.10. She was last seen by a neighbor, Paul Meehan, leaving her grandparents' place and walking towards the train station again just after noon. Christine texted just before 2 that she would probably be home early, around 2.30 in the afternoon instead of 10 p.m. So she arrived home and Stuart was watching TV and he said that Tia had gone to Croydon to buy some flip-flops and Christine was a bit annoyed because Stuart had given her money to buy them and she had needed that money for some groceries, but she wasn't concerned. Twelve-year-olds in that neighborhood and as brash and streetwise as Tia was could definitely take the train no problem. Stuart said he realized when he tried to call Tia that she had left her cell phone on the charger, which he thought was odd, but she must have just forgotten it. About one and a half hours later, she hadn't returned, so they called Natalie to see if she had just gone home after, which would have been strange since she would have realized she didn't have her phone on her. Natalie said no, so they all started driving around looking for her, and the beginnings of blind panic are starting to set in. By 10 p.m., they knew they were in over their heads, so all three of them went to the police station to report Tia missing. There are a couple of things police do when a child is reported missing, besides try to determine if they're just a runaway, which they didn't do in this case. They took their report very seriously, probably because she had left her laptop and phone behind, and 12-year-olds don't run away without those. But what they do is check the house. I remember one time when Cecilia ran away from home when she was about eight, and I had to call the police in a state of absolute utter panic. Um, I mean, I do true crime in my spare time, so I was a mess. And they did a search in the area right away, but they also did a search of the house in case I had, you know, killed her. And I mean, they searched my house, even looked down into the crawl space under my washing machine, anywhere a child could fit. Anyways, it turned out okay in the end. She had started walking and got turned around and a bus driver heard the description they put out and picked her up and brought her in. All was good. Anyways, they did that and looked around the house and talked to the neighbors and that's when they got the info from the neighbor Paul Meehan who had said that she was headed towards the train station. And if you have never been or never watched any of the UK crime documentaries out there, London is awash in CCTV cameras. They are everywhere. Do not scratch your butt or pick your nose anywhere but in the privacy of your own home in London. I'm just saying. Anyways, they search all the footage, and I believe it was about 300 cameras or 300 hours of footage, something like that. And they can see that she got off the train in Croydon and Stuart had met her, and then they went shopping at a grocery store, but nothing after that. Certainly not at the Croydon station or the mall where she was supposed to have been buying flip-flops. So the police suspect that maybe she didn't actually plan on going there and she was actually meeting someone. I mean, she's 12. It's not unheard of for a girl to have a secret boyfriend at that age. And we also know how bad that can end up. So they go back and search the house again the next day and grab her laptop and her cell phone. 
and her phone showed that she had last sent a text to a friend at 12.42 a.m. and then nothing after that. And the text was pretty innocuous, nothing bad. It's not a big house, so they searched around again as well for any other things of significance. Now, I have to do a wee bit of conjecture here because I wasn't there and I don't definitively know what was going on in the minds of the investigators, but it sounds like they originally went in the direction that she had left to go by flip-flops as they were told, and that was affirmed by the neighbor, Paul Meehan, who saw her leave. And Paul, remember, was a neighbor. So he knew Tia, not just, you know, someone who would have looked a bit like her. And he said that he saw her, but they couldn't find any footage of her. They started to circle back to the house and they searched the house a total of five times. But it seems to me like they searched in the way you do for a set of keys when you're panicking to find them. You know how you randomly will open drawers, you know that you've already searched in, kind of like you're expecting them to just jump up and bite you. It feels a bit like that. Meanwhile, the court of public opinion is starting to turn on the family, who are, they are convinced had something to do with her disappearance, mostly due to their low-income status and some of Stewart's past offenses. The family was pretty rough around the edges, so they figured they must have done something to her. Investigators were starting to get a bit suspicious too, but mostly that perhaps she never left the house or came back without Stuart knowing and might be injured or something in the house and not able to call out for help. And maybe the sound of the door closing at lunchtime was actually a thud from a fall or something. So they keep coming back to search the house. Stuart, who was out there at every vigil and search party for Tia standing beside Christine and Natalie, is starting to get pissed off that they keep treating the three of them as suspects when they should be searching for Tia. So he actually called ITV News to give an interview and let the public know how he felt. Now his accent is very heavy, but I'll just give you a little snippet of it here. It's silly, do you know what I mean? All the hearsay in the papers, they've they been dicking up my previous, which has got absolutely nothing to do with it, and they've even got that arse about face. Everyone's got a shady past, yeah, do you know what I mean? That's 10 years ago, for God's sake. Do you know what I mean? They've gone to my dad, they've seen my dad, he's got everything else back to front, and you know what I mean? And they've just going on what he's saying, and when they say, you say something, they twist your words. Do you know what I mean? I'd love to sit there. And they asked me stupid questions yesterday, like, oh, did you do anything? I said, well, no, I bloody didn't. Excuse my language, but no, I didn't. I'd never think of that. I'd love to bitch she's like my own daughter, for God's sake. We had that sort of relationship. It was that sort of thing. It was just, you know, she wanted it, she got it. She's got, no, she's got a loving, loving home. She's, she's never gone without anything, so I can't work it out. What the hell's going on? Where well, we're out there, they want to report the truth. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? They're just... Just reporting what they're talking to people around here that don't even know us and getting things off them, but they don't know anything. Do you know what I mean? They're just going on hearsay. Everyone going hearsay. But what is kind of interesting about this interview is that it was actually conducted by a former detective. And the investigators that watched the interview noticed something interesting. I'm just going to play a little bit more of it for you to see if you can hear what I hear and what the investigators heard. She came downstairs, she sat down, um, just sat down here, what the chair where Dave, where you are now, Dave, Uh, sitting there watching telly. She picked up uh, your mum's DS up, played the DS for a little while. I said, well, we're going to have some breakfast. So I made her some toast. 
and she had toast and then she wanted a sausage roll because she's always eating sausage rolls. Uh, uh, basically then she was sitting there, she doesn't take her washing up out, so I took her washing up out. Um, just started doing a little bit of washing up in the kitchen, she was in there, she was telling me what she was doing, but I weren't really logging it into my head, I didn't, do you know what I mean? The kids, they talk to you, it goes in one ear, stays there for a second, it goes out, you know what I mean? Then I was washing up, not the size down. Um, I missed out the, the hoovering, I was doing hoovering there, but what it was, I started off sweeping up in there, but where we have a rug, I can't sweep the rug, so I had to hoover the rug because it's got, it's like really fluffy. So I've hoovered the rug off, I've hoovered all the way out to the front door, literally the kitchen, the hallway. I've got out there, I've come back with another cigarette. Uh, this time, too, I've got upstairs, I've got the washing, sorry, after I've done the whole way there, I've got upstairs, done the washing, make sure there's no washing upstairs, made the bed, opened the curtains. Uh, come back downstairs. Uh, by then, Tia's going upstairs to get changed. Uh, she was still mumbling away. Uh, I can't remember what she was bloody on about, to be honest with her, excuse my language. Um, uh, well, basically, uh, I was in the kitchen, then just finished off all that, then I come back in here, finished off my hoovering in the front room in the hallway, got to there. When I got the dog's bed, I emptied the dog's beds out. Um, as I was hoovering, then she walked out, the, she walked past me from the front room to go out. And she walked out the front door, that is all I know. Now you and I are murder junkies, so it just seems to me that he's giving an awful lot of small details. And if you are a murder junkie, then you know that all those details smell like he's lying about something. So the cops go back for a fifth search, and immediately upon entering the house, they smell what they know is decomposition. Christine says, sorry about the smell, I think a cat shit somewhere in the house, but I can't find it. But the investigators know better. Now before I go on, I just want to take a second to address this elephant in the room that we podcast listeners are all too familiar with, this unmistakable scent of death. To anyone that works around who has experienced the smell, it's unmistakable. But to those of us that are not familiar with it, it can be confused for rotting garbage with meat in it. And the smell and how far it travels and how much it affects you depends on a number of factors, including the direction of the wind, the air temperature, humidity, the cause of death, say an open wound versus no wounds, or versus infection, and even what the surface of the body is laying on and how acute your own sense of smell is, and most importantly, if it's covered with anything. So that's why sometimes you hear of someone that doesn't really notice anything until they pull back a sheet or open a garbage bag that contains a dead body. And the reason why I bring this up is that Christine is going to be arrested for living for a week with a dead body in her house, and that dead body is going to belong to Tia Sharp. But she was let go later because she didn't have anything to do with her murder. So now let's talk about these searches and how Tia's body was discovered. Now remember, this is the fifth time that they have been in the house to search it now. Tia was found in a garbage bag in the attic. On the first night of her disappearance, Sergeant Keith Lyons did use a chair to look up in the attic. He had to hoist himself up and his legs were dangling down. He was surprised at how clean it was up there. Not a lot of junk, just a couple of bags and boxes, but he didn't didn't bother to look any further. The next morning, five officers searched, but not the attic. 
They were just grabbing her computer and phone. Then the third search at Constable Stephen Jeffries said, quote, I have never searched a loft before and I didn't want to cause any damage. So what he did is he looked in the attic, he moved a couple of black bags around, but they felt that they were too light to have contained a body. On the fourth search of the house on August 8th, a cadaver dog did signal towards the ceiling under the loft, but officers decided it was not necessary to check again because it had been searched before and the dog was too big to put in the loft safely. On this fifth and final search, after removing an overfilled garbage bag, officers found Tia wrapped in a body-shaped package within three feet of that attic. Unlike the other items, it was free of dust and her big toe was sticking out through the plastic. Detective Daniel Chatfield said, quote, the loft was extremely confined. It was very hot and quite chaotic. After approximately 10 minutes, the body was found. My colleague alerted me to what he believed to be the body of Tia. On the side nearest to me, I could see a foot. I could reach her ankles with my arms. It was three feet away at most. Also in that attic was a cardboard box containing two other plastic bags, one with Tia's yellow t-shirt and leggings and another with some candy wrappers and her broken glasses. Commander Neil Basu, who was responsible for finding Tia, insisted that her body was well concealed. Her body was so badly decomposed that they had to use dental records and DNA to positively identify her, and the cause of death was impossible to determine for sure. On the morning of this fifth search, Stuart had left the house probably knowing that the gig was up. But stupidly, he went to a liquor store to buy some vodka, and while he was there, he drunkenly told the clerk that he was Tia's grandfather and they were looking for her. A very astute and likely aspiring murder junkie like us, a 12-year-old, saw Stuart stumble out of this liquor store, recognized his face and the fine Tia t-shirt that he was wearing, and went into the liquor store to tell the clerk to call the police. Okay, so let's first go back to this Paul Meehan character that saw Tia on the day of her disappearance. It turns out, He didn't see anything and would later be convicted of wasting the investigator's time. I guess that's actually a thing in the UK. So remember how I always say, if you see something, say something. Well, if you don't see anything, don't say anything. Tia never left her grandparents' house. In fact, she never lived to see the morning after the night she stayed at Christine and Stewart's. What the police found after searching the house post the discovery of Tia's body was evidence of a betrayal so deep that I can't even comprehend it. Stuart Hazel had more than just a troubled past. He revealed that his father was a career criminal and his mother had been a sex worker. He spent most of his childhood in foster care and claims to have been sexually abused at a very young age. In probably one of the most infuriating parts of the store was that Stewart, while in custody for nine months, kept claiming his innocence. And then after five days of seeing evidence that was so traumatic, I don't even want to detail it for you, decided to plead guilty to her murder. During his protests of innocence, his story changed from Tia suffering a fall down the stairs and that she passed away in her sleep and he was too distraught to tell Christine and Natalie. But on his phone and computer, they found child pornography, including bestiality photos, 
computer searches of illegal underage incest pictures and naked little girlies. Those are direct quotes of searches, which he searched for while the rest of his family was in a blind panic looking for Tia. And the worst of what they found was videos of Tia applying moisturizer to her legs, and he filmed her while she slept. Tia was completely unaware that that she was growing into a young and lovely woman. Her grandfather was secretly obsessing and masturbating to thoughts of her. On the night of the murder, while Tia happily played games on the PlayStation, Stuart got drunk and violently sexually assaulted Tia. They don't know exactly how she died, but the theory is that Stuart smothered her with his sweaty, gross, and heavy body while assaulting her so that she could neither cry out for help or breathe. After she was dead, the court and her family was shown photos that he took of her corpse posed in a sexual position. He says he pled guilty on day five to spare the family the pain of a trial. But this was after the family had to learn the horrific details and actually see the photos. So I believe this monster just wanted to torture the family a bit more. His defense lawyer said, quote, The easiest thing for Stuart Hazel would have been to brazen out the rest of this case. His decision to plead guilty today is the probably the bravest decision he has ever made in his life. Maybe the only brave decision he has made in his life. And then he added, much to my chagrin, that any sexual activity, quote, took place very near to the end of Tia's life. Like that somehow makes it better. He was sentenced to a life sentence and a minimum of 38 years before he can apply for parole. Egregiously, the judge did not impose the maximum sentence because the cause of death could not say for sure that Tia's murder was sexually motivated, and it could not be proved that the photo of Tia was taken after she died. So I'll just pause a second and let that sink in. Semen and blood were found on Tia's bed duvet, but Stewart insists there was nothing sexual about her murder. Christine, who was vilified in the media and had gotten death threats, said that she thought Hazel was her soulmate, but now wanted him to suffer every day for the rest of his life for killing an innocent girl who idolized him. Quote, I let my baby down and I will never be able to get over that. I spent five nights in that house being cuddled and comforted by um, the man I loved, praying for Tia to come home safely, end quote. Needless to say, Christine and Natalie continued to struggle after Stewart's conviction and sentence. In May of 2013, Christine was criticized for not knowing what Stewart was, or worse, helping him hide her body. Natalie says she's been stared at and physically attacked. She's been told she shouldn't be out shopping and stuff since her child was murdered. But she says she has two other children to be taken care of. And someone also referred her to Child Protective Services over the care of her other kids. In March of 2016, both Natalie and Christine were convicted of a parking lot attack um, they had launched at a supermarket against a a Kosovan woman. Uh, Judge Sonia Woodley said that sadly her daughter's death had 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 an effect on her and that despite that she had behaved in a disgraceful way. I accept that you have had a difficult time in the last few years, but this kind of behavior must not take place. Uh, They both got 12 months of community service for that. Now, the reason I wanted to tell this story in my own way is because I accept that Christine and Natalie were rough around the edges and not exactly the 
typical suburban soccer practice and dental appointments type of family, but they couldn't have known what Stuart was because he hid the darkest parts of himself. And yes, they overlooked his criminal criminal past, but to me that makes sense. Yes, Christine is brass and crude and not living behind a white picket fence, and I probably wouldn't have her over for tea and biscuits or go out of my way to befriend her. And just because I wouldn't overlook, I personally wouldn't overlook someone's criminal history doesn't mean that they deserve to have their child murdered. And the coverage I found in my research put some of the blame on Christine in particular. But she didn't murder anyone. Stuart did. She made the mistake of thinking a dead body smell was cat poop. She's not to blame. I find a lot of times in my research there is a lot of coulda, woulda, shoulda thrown around. But one thing I do know is that no matter the circumstances, the family members of victims do enough of that to themselves. They don't need us judging their choices after the fact. And that was the horrible betrayal and murder of Tia Sharp. I will be back again next week with another case. And still, and as always, thank you so much for listening. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.